0: Heavenly Father, we've had um, already such an incredible opportunity to hear this vision that You gave of Your Son to the Apostle John so many years ago. And we hear it, Father, and I know our, our tendency, especially as Westerners, is to not hear it correctly. I have a simple prayer request this morning, Father, that You would, for me, And for my brothers and sisters here this morning, that you would, through your Spirit, cause us to see Christ correctly. We want to see Him in all of His majesty and all of His glory. For we do believe, Father, that if we see Christ clearly, we will live differently. We will leave this place different than we came in. I ask, Lord, that You would, this morning, not only here in this church, but in Your true church throughout the world, that You would magnify Jesus Christ. That You would reveal Him to Your people as You did to John on the island of Patmos. And in so doing, Father, I pray that You would cause Your people throughout the world today to fall down as though dead, knowing that You are holy and we are sinners. And at the same time, Father, I pray that Christ would touch us and call us to rise and stand and worship Him. Father, we know these are large requests. We're asking for you to break into the mundane, at times trivial life we experience here in the West. But this is Your desire for us, to see You clearly, to follow Your Son, and to bring You glory. So we know it's in accordance with Your will, so we pray Your will be done this day here. I am so thankful for those that You've gathered here, and all Your children that are gathered in true churches here in the South Bay, in the state, and throughout the world. This is your day, Lord. Make yourself known so that we might worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a reason the Apostle Paul calls preaching foolishness. For a man to take the word of God and attempt to proclaim these truths, It's always a difficult task, I would argue, for every preacher on every Sunday. But passages like this I find particularly challenging. I I, I am going to, by God's grace, rely upon the Holy Spirit to move you mightily. Because trying to cast a vision of Jesus Christ using human words is almost an impossible endeavor. But I have faith in the Holy Spirit. I have faith that the Holy Spirit will work in you and that you will see Christ clearly this morning. And in so doing, you will change. You will change in a most glorious way. We want to see Christ clearly because when we see things clearly, we do change. When I was, uh, when I was a younger man and my wife was pregnant with our, our first son, Kirk, during that nine months of the pregnancy, I had this idea of what it was going to be like to be a father, There was a sense of excitement. There was a sense of joy. There was a sense of fear that I was going to mess it up. And then he was born. And in the delivery room on that day, everything changed. The joy was literally infinitely more than I could have imagined. The fear was greater than I thought. It became crystal clear when I saw him. That now, yes, I was a father and my life changed permanently. During our Lord's earthly ministry, he healed six blind people. And on two other occasions, we're told that he healed many. In fact, there's no other place in the Old or New Testament where a man is healing the blind other than Christ. He wants us to see clearly because he knows that when we do, we will change. My beloved, we pick up our study here in Revelation chapter 1 this morning with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, I'm not in Acts. With the Apostle John. That's what happens when you're too long in a book. With the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, and he's going to receive a vision. And it's not just any vision, it is a vision of the Son of Man. And I, I'm going to be a spoiler here that's Christ, that is the Son of God. It was a vision given by God to enable John to see and then write, now listen, so that we can see him too. This wasn't just for John. He was commanded to write so that John's vision could become our vision so that we could maybe by God's grace in the Spirit see the majesty and the glory and the beauty and the power of Jesus. My beloved, if I'm faithful to this text and the Holy Spirit is good to you, you cannot find this sermon even remotely boring. We cannot talk about Christ in his glorification and be bored for a minute if we know him. Jesus is no longer the baby in the manger, he's no longer the 12 year old in the temple teaching the scribes, he's no longer in his earthly ministry. He's not on the cross. He's not on the tomb. He has risen. He has ascended. He is glorified. Now we reflect upon Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. But right now, at this very moment, he is the glorious one. And so we want to see him this morning as he is. So that in so doing, like John, we will respond in worship. We'll respond in faith. High goal. I know. I want to do that by showing you two things. One, I want want us to see the Son of Man. I want us to get a glimpse of the vision of the Son of Man that God gave John. And then by grace and mercy, I want us to worship the Son of Man. Seeing the Son of Man and worshiping the Son of Man, the theme of the sermon is this. See the Son of Man so you can live as a son or daughter of God. Okay? Okay? See the Son of Man clearly so that you can live as a son or daughter of the living one, of the living God. All right, so let's, let's begin this grand endeavor. I mean, it's like we are going to be ascending Everest. I need to pass out oxygen mass for us to get to this place where we picture and see Christ clearly. I want you to be overwhelmed by it. I know I was all week and still am. Number one, seeing the Son of Man. Look at verse 9. This is the Apostle John writing, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So our beloved Apostle begins in such a tender and loving way, does he not? He doesn't say, I, John the Apostle, John the Beloved. He doesn't say that. He says, brother and partner in the tribulation. He says, listen, I'm I'm a member of the kingdom. I am a priest like you, and I am suffering like you. And so right out of the gate, he says, listen, I'm I'm, I'm on this 13-square-mile island out in the Aegean Sea, a popular place for Roman emperors to exile those who were living disobedient lives. He was put there because John had been faithful to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was preaching and teaching a crucified risen Savior. And so he was exiled by one of the emperors, I I believe it was likely, Domitian. But I want you to notice he's writing this not reflectively, he's not thinking about the persecution, he is writing it as he's being persecuted. He himself on that island, isolated, without a church, is writing, knowing full well the sting of the persecution that these churches were going through too. And then John tells us in verse 10, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That was Sunday, the day of our Lord's resurrection. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So when John declares that he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, this is not being in the Spirit in a Pauline sense. It wasn't to say, I'm walking by the Spirit rather than the flesh. This is being in the Spirit in the Old Testament prophetic sense. The Holy Spirit had come upon John as he had come upon the prophets of old, not just to give him a word which would have been sufficient, but to give him a vision, a vision to write that we too might have it. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon John in a supernatural way, and John hears a voice, and he describes it like a trumpet. Now, listen, as as soon as you hear that, you should be thinking, voice and trumpet, oh, that's Sinai. That's Mount Sinai. That's Old Testament. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. If you remember after, after our Lord brought the people out of Egypt, during the exile, He brought them to Mount Sinai to enter into a covenant relationship with them. And as he appeared there with the lightning and the clouds and the smoke, supernaturally, and he spoke to Moses, giving Moses the law, trumpets accompanied his speaking. And so just as Moses received a word, a supernatural word, with the accompanying of trumpets, so now God appears to John with a voice that sounds like trumpets. In other words, this message, listen, is really, really important the trumpet sound, very much like Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the covenant that God entered into with His people is now being heard here by John on the island of Patmos. The latter part of verse 10, look. John said, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So he commands him to what? Write. Write it down. Write what I'm going to tell you. Ten times in the book of Revelation, John is commanded to write. You say, well, why are you even telling me that? It reminds the readers, and I hope it reminds you, that these were not John's very strange imaginations and wild dreams after having a late night pizza. These are messages from heaven. Directly from God to man, written down that we might have them too. So these churches could have them in the midst of persecution. So they could be encouraged. So that we could be encouraged. And my my beloved, no better way does God encourage His people than to show His people Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? Before He goes into any detail of what He's going to be saying to these churches... John turns around and a vision, now this vision was given by God to John to see and then to write down so that we can see it this morning. Look at verse 12. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, and so it begins. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So John turns, and the first thing that he sees, he sees seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands, Jesus will tell us in verse 20, we'll look at this briefly, these are the seven churches that he just listed in Asia Minor. Now, a lampstand, if you know your Old Testament history, the lampstand was in the tabernacle and then in the temple, and the lampstand was placed just outside the holiest of holies. And it was placed outside the holiest of holies because that's where the Israelites believed God would descend and his glory would come and his presence would be with his people. And so that lampstand was there to illuminate the holiest of holies, to cast light on the presence and glory of God. In fact, so important was the lampstand in the tabernacle and then in the temple that priests had to take shifts throughout the night from dusk to dawn to make sure the light stayed on. That's how important it was for God's glory to be not in the dark but in the light. So it's fitting that the lampstand is symbolic for the church, God's church, people gathered out of the darkness, into the light, indwelt by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of what? Glorifying God, shining the light of Jesus Christ out to the world. Jesus said this clearly in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we are to be that light, the lampstand that shines to the world the glory and the magnificence of God. And so it was fitting that Jesus was in the midst of the lampstands as we shine glory onto him. Secondly, though, in the midst of the lampstand, John sees, and this really drives the rest of the passage, he sees the Son of Man, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man... And he sees him walking in the presence of these lampstands in the midst of his church. And it was meant, I do believe, to bring encouragement to the churches then and to us now that Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He's with the church. He's encouraging the church. He's suffering with the church. And that he's present with us. And he gives this title, the Son of Man. Now, you hear that and you say, well, I know that from the Gospels. I particularly know that from... The Gospel of John, because Jesus used that about himself all the time, and that's true. But John's going back a little bit further. He's drawing this title, the Son of Man, absolutely from the prophet Daniel, because the prophet Daniel had a very similar vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. And in Daniel's vision, like John, he uses symbolic language to describe, now listen, to describe a man who appeared to be divine. Daniel describes him centuries earlier, much like John will, that this is a man, this is the son of man, but he's not just a man. He's certainly not an ordinary man because he looks and he acts and he moves like God. So he is the God-man. And you say, well, of course, it's Christ, the God-man. And like Daniel, John uses symbolic language to describe what he sees. Now listen, this is our first big dose, all right? This is our first where we're gonna take Symbolic. We're going to swallow that medicine and try to understand symbolism in the context of the book of Revelation. Remember, a symbol is something that represents or teaches to or points to something else. So we don't take the word literally, we take it symbolically. And some of these are going to be very obvious to you. John is very gracious, the Holy Spirit's gracious. He uses the word like five times in four verses so that we don't get stupidly literal and think that Jesus literally has feet made of bronze or that when he speaks, a double-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. It's symbolic language. We want to keep this trend through 22 chapters. Okay? Each symbol means something specific, but it's really important for us to understand. We're going to look at them briefly But John wants you to get the holistic picture of the God-man. He wants you to see what he saw and be rightly moved. I would say overwhelmed to the point where you too would fall down as though dead. So as we look at these, I want you to put them together in your mind's eye. Take each one and make the composite that is the Son of Man that should cause us to worship So he begins with the man's clothing. I don't know if you noticed that. This is not because John was some fashionista. I doubt that he was dressed very well at all on the island of Patmos. It's because of what the Son of Man's clothes revealed. Look at verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now the long robe and the golden sash, these were worn by the priest under the Old Covenant. So this would have been known by them. And the priests were responsible for what? They were responsible for making sacrifices for the sins of the people on behalf of the people before a holy God. So they were there as mediators between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So here Jesus is wearing his priestly garments because he is already our high priest. Remember, we're mid-90s. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended. He is our high priest when this is being written. He's already interceded successfully on behalf of the sins of man by ascending the cross and dying on our behalf. In fact, the author of Hebrews made this very clear in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Listen. He, Jesus, is the mediator. He is the priest of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death, speaking of Jesus' death, since a death has occurred... That redeems them, that's the believer, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, under the law. So he's already the high priest. That's why John sees him adorned in priestly vestments. He is able to mediate. He's able to reconcile the breach of sin between the holiness of God and your sins. My beloved, that is the great news of the gospel that we have a high priest, we have a mediator who can come before the holiness of God and say, save these. I paid for their sins. They can live out of judgment and into life. But if verse 13 reveals the Son of Man's priestly qualities, then verse 14 reveals his absolute omniscience. Look at verse 14. This is, a bit, this is a little strange for us culturally. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. You're like, okay, great. So he's, he's gray. He's old. Daniel chapter 7, there's a picture of the Son of Man as he approaches the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days is obviously God sitting upon his throne. And this is the description given by Daniel, Daniel 7, 9. The ancient of days his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. In other words, the the pure white hair that John sees on the Son of Man isn't literal. It reveals the wisdom and omniscience that belongs to the ancient of days, that belongs to God alone. Revealing that this Son of Man, remember he is a man, he is truly man, but he's omniscient and therefore what? Who's omniscient? Only God. Only God. Only God's omniscient. And yet here the son of man, he has the same white hair, the same pure hair, revealing that he too is God. And that's added to this description in the latter part of verse 14. Not only that he's all-knowing, but in his being all-knowing, he has this perfect and piercing discernment. Did you notice that? latter part of verse 14. It's catchy, is it not? His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now notice how John says they are like a flame of fire. His eyes are not literally a flame of fire. It's symbolic. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see Jesus in chapter 2, verse 18, when he's speaking to the church at Thyatira. He's going to say, the Son of God speaking himself who has eyes like a flame of fire. In other words, this Son of Man that John is seeing is omniscient and in his omniscience, he's all-seeing, all-discerning. All-discerning. And that means, my beloved, nothing is hidden from him. Now, these, these are moments when we want to pause and say, hmm, I don't know that I like that. All-knowing, all-seeing, all the time, everything. Yes, your heart, your mind, your life, everything. He sees And part of you think that's super encouraging. And another part of you thinks, oh, dread. Because he sees those things nobody else sees but me. It's never just you, my beloved. God sees everything. This is who he is. John continues in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And again, this is picked up from Daniel chapter 10 where Daniel describes either the son of man or an angel, depending upon how you interpret it, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. You think, what is burnished bronze? It's polished, it's shiny bronze. Now, most of you know what what bronze is. You're thinking, why is it on his, why does it describe his feet? I mean, it's just just odd, I think. I mean, I've seen people wear bronze-colored shoes. I've never seen anybody wear an actual pair of bronze shoes. But it says his feet, not so much his shoes, his feet were like burnished bronze bronze and, and they would have understood this it, it meant that he had all power that he was invincible to defeat his enemies in fact many of the commentators argue that it's tied into uh, the footwear of a soldier and soldiers would wear shoes or boots and a, a soldier that had an ill-fitting shoe or boot was not equipped well to fight in battle it actually made them less apt to less able to fight But not the Son of Man's feet. They're like polished bronze, refined perfectly in the furnace. They fit perfectly, and therefore what? He is able to crush every single enemy under His foot. He is invincible. There is no enemy that can come against the Son of Man. His feet are like burnished bronze. And then we're told in the latter part of verse 15, His voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, if you know your Old Testament, that's a phrase used frequently. My favorite comes from Psalm 93, verse 4. The psalmist writes, Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waters of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty, almighty, all-powerful. And so the Son of Man is revealed here by John to be the almighty God. So do you see what John is seeing? He is seeing a man, truly man, But this man has the attributes of being truly God too. He is the high priest. He's omniscient. He's invincible. He's all powerful. None of you can say that about yourselves. And yet you are created in the image of God. You can't say that. But the son of man can because he is God. But John doesn't stop there. Is that that enough for you? That that should be sufficient. If you say I need more, then we're not grasping these first few pieces. But I'll give you more because John does. He doesn't stop there. He gives two more descriptions before falling on his face as though dead. Look at verse 16. In his, speaking of the Son of Man, in his right hand, he held seven stars. We'll, we'll look at that when we get to verse 20 because it's described there. But from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining the sun shining in full strength. So the sword then was a weapon. It was a weapon for war. It was also a weapon used for judgment. And so here it refers to the son of man's words that that by the son of man speaking he's able to judge. How so? We're going to find we're going to see this in Revelation chapter 19 verse 15, the sword of Jesus' mouth his sw- his words will strike down the nations. And we already know from Hebrews chapter 4, I hope you remember, that his word is living and active, sharper than what any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, discerning with his burning eyes the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then he says in Hebrews, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, the words of this son of man are words that judge perfectly. They judge perfectly, and they will be used to judge the living and the dead. And so when we hear the book of Revelation and we open our Bibles and we hear it being proclaimed on a Sunday, we must take it very, very seriously, my beloved. This book will be used to judge you too. Every man, woman, and child ever born, we must not dismiss it There's a reason that Jesus said, Man does not live upon bread alone, but what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He lives on every word, and he will be judged by every word, if not in Christ. Then the last one, John tells us, the Son of Man's face, verse 16 again, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Right? So I want you to picture August, Phoenix, you're outside. It's high noon, you look up, and what do you feel? You feel the intensity of the light, you feel the intensity of the heat. It's full strength, and it's symbolic for the glory of God. This is the face of the Son of Man. Now, John already got a glimpse of this because he was one of three very blessed disciples who got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you remember, he got to see Jesus momentarily transfigured into his glorious state. Matthew 7, chapter, Matthew 17, verse 2. We're told that Jesus was transfigured before them, including John, and his face what? Shone like the sun. That was just a that was a trailer. That was just a taste. But now John gazes upon Jesus in his perfectly glorified state. He sees in the Son of Man the full glory of the living God. Full glory. What a vision my beloved. What an incredible vision. A vision given to John to be written down, to be given to the church that we might what? That we might be encouraged. I pray you don't hear this and say, oh, kind of boring, pastor. I pray you do not hear it and think, well, scary. There's a right fear to this and there's a wrong fear to this and hopefully we will we'll see that before we close. This Vision was given by God and then written down so that you can maybe, by the power of the Spirit, feel, experience, and be moved this very morning by who Jesus is. This vision is not just a vision that was seen by John and then went away. This is who Christ is so that you can maybe get a taste of his vision truly unspeakable glory. I did a horrible job preaching this because you can't preach it. His unspeakable glory, his unmatched splendor, I would say his vocabulary defying majesty of who he is, the Son of Man, your Savior, your King. Jesus wants us to know this because Jesus knows all too well That what we fix our gaze on determines how we live our lives. Jesus knows what you look at, what you think about, what you meditate on, that's the life that you're going to live. In fact, Paul made this very clear to the church at Colossae. He said this, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, that's the picture of the glorified Jesus. And then Paul said, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so with your mind's eye, every moment of every day until you see Christ face to face, you're supposed to fix your eyes on Christ. Perfectly. By the power of the Spirit. Now I would argue that if we were really honest, most of us would agree that our lives are shaped by the things of this world and not the things of heaven or Son of heaven. If we were really honest right now, I, I bet we would say, Yeah, it's the horizontal that shapes me. It's the circumstances that shape me my relationships, my health, my finances, especially as of late, my work, politics. Circumstances shape me more than Christ. And not only that, I would argue that we would probably be truthful in saying it's the earthly desires that shape us more than the desires of the kingdom of God, the things that we pursue in this world that we want right now, that new job, that bigger house, that moment of fame, maybe a little peace in the midst of anxiety or a little security in the midst of uncertainty. My beloved, as Christians, we're supposed to know better, aren't we? I mean, we're supposed to know that our lives are to be fixed upon and gazing upon Jesus Christ. Our gaze must be vertical. It's not that we don't see the horizontal, but the horizontal does not shape how we live. It's the vertical. It's Christ. It's the Son of Man. It's the eternal truths of heaven. It's Jesus Christ center stage in your life. You see, God knows that if we make much of Jesus in our lives, a couple things will happen. Those outside the church who do not know Christ will see Christ through us. And God will use that to redeem some of them. And he knows, he knows for us that if we keep our focus and our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will be daily encouraged regardless of our circumstances. The most difficult times in your life, the greatest tribulations, if your eyes are fixed on Christ, you are secure. Your course is good. If we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we are then able to fight against the temptations of this world. The circumstances won't knock us over. The temptations of the flesh, the comforts of life, all the desires, the things that you long for so much that you think to yourself, if I have that, I'll be satisfied, and then you get it, and what? You're not. If we keep our eyes fixed upon this glorious one, God knows that our lives will be lived very, very differently. David said in the psalm Psalm 27 verse 4, here's a I think a direct application for us from the Old Testament. David wrote this, he said, "One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. The one thing that he asked of the Lord that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple." David's desire was to be in the temple to see God. Now, this is before Jesus came down to earth. This is before the incarnation of the glorious one, the Son of Man. And yet, I would argue that David had a much much better understanding of the beauty and majesty of the Son of God than we do, than most Christians do today. Even though he... He stumbled, he remained a man after God's own heart. The one thing he asked for, the one thing he sought, he said, God, I want to dwell in your house that I can gaze upon your beauty to see and experience your glory. David got it. David got it, my my beloved. There's nothing better than the glory of God. There's nothing more satisfying than the glory of God. Tell me, what in the heavens or on earth compares to the majesty and glory and beauty of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Tell me what it is. It does not exist. In fact, I would say it does not come close. My beloved, if you are in Christ, who, who could be more precious to you than the high priest who surrendered his body and his blood on a cross so you could have eternal life instead of eternal death? Who could be more precious to you Who could be more precious than the man who gave up everything including his own father so that you could be redeemed to eternal life forever? Who, my beloved, could be more comforting to you, listen, with all your might, more comforting to you than the all-knowing, all-discerning God-man who knows you all the way to the bottom? He knows all the secrets. He knows all the stuff you don't want anybody else to know and yet in the cross, in the gospel, He loves you all the way to the top. What greater comfort can you have than that? Than the God-man knowing you and loving you in spite of your own sin. Than the God-man who knows your circumstances. He knows your struggles and He's not only working them out for your good and His glory. He is with you in the midst of them. What greater comfort Can you have than that. I say none. Who could bring you greater peace than the invincible, almighty, perfect judge who already judged all of your sins on that wretched tree when he gave his life, setting you free so that you can love and serve him? That perfect judge who will judge all injustice and all crime and all oppression and all sin, all the suffering, will be adjudicated on that last day when He comes again in glory. What greater peace can you find than that? And my beloved, who could satisfy your hungry soul? Your longing to be filled more than the glory of the living God. The beauty and the majesty and the splendor of the Creator of the universe. What will you draw into your life to fill you that will be greater than the creator of the universe? It's a foolish question. You say, well, you're setting me up. But it, there, it, re- it requires a response to it. The most beautiful sunset. My wife and I were driving over 17 this morning and there's a spot, if you cross the summit, where you can look off to the right and on days like today, it's, it, was, it was sunny up on the summit and the clouds and the fog, was, it was mixed in with the the trees and the mountains, and the Lord says, oh, Wow, stunning. Nothing compared to Christ. The magnificence of the Milky Way. The breathtaking snow-capped mountains of the Himalayas. That beautiful bride waiting to walk down the aisle, the beauty of your newborn child. Whatever satisfaction you find in any of those things in this world, they pale. By comparison to the all-satisfying, life-sustaining joy of the glory of God, they pale by comparison. So much so that you can't compare them because God is infinitely glorious. So the question for you is this, do you see the Son of Man as He is? When you contemplate in your mind's eye Jesus Christ, do you see Him as He was described through the Apostle John? Or for you, is he still a baby in a manger? Is he still on the cross? Has he captivated your heart? That is the real question, is it not? Has the Son of Man captivated your heart and as a result shaped you to live your life day in and day out very, very differently? Is your gaze vertical first and foremost or do you still have all those silly little idols competing for your attention? Is Jesus just one of many gods vying for your affections, the things that you chase after that cannot save and cannot satisfy? We know the first and greatest commandment is to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the first and greatest commandment. That is seeing Christ as he is. I had a dear brother last week tell me he was really struggling i said well why, why are you struggling so much he said i'm just trying to manage my life i'm trying to manage my marriage and my kids and my work and my school and jesus and i went oh well that might be your problem we don't manage jesus we don't fit god in god must be first and everything must come underneath are you unsure where you stand Point number two, worshiping the Son of Man. Look at the latter part of verse 17. John says, now, when I saw him, I'm sorry, the first part of verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Anyone who sees God, the glory of God, this is the universal response. Old Testament, New Testament, when a man or woman gets a glimpse of the glory of God, they fall down. Here the majesty and the power and the beauty of the Son of Man is, it's too much for John. He can't take it. And he falls down as though dead. And there's a wordplay on that. It's beautiful, I'll show you. So the question, my beloved, for saved and unsaved is not, will you fall down before God when you get a glimpse of his glory? In fact, that, that, that's not a question at all. Paul made it very clear in his letter to the Philippians that every single person when they see God in some capacity will fall down. Philippians chapter 2 speaking now of the Son of Man this glorious Jesus Paul writes God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name you know this So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen, amen. It's not a question of if we will fall down. All the way back in Genesis chapter 17, when God came to make a covenant of circumcision with Abraham, We're told then when he appeared to Abraham, Abraham fell down on his face. In Leviticus chapter 9, when the glory of God appeared at the altar, he appeared to all the people through fire and he consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat. All the people shouted and what? They fell on their face. They fell down. My favorite is from 1 Kings. If you remember in 1 Kings, Elijah is doing battle with the prophets of Baal. And the prophets of Baal, they, they can't quite get fire to come down and they try and they scream out and they cut themselves. Well, God descends to vindicate his prophet Elijah and he devours not only the, the sacrifices but the altar itself which had been saturated in water. And this is what happens. Listen, all the people, all the people fell on their face and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God with their faces to the ground. The manifestation of God's glory, even in a small dose, will cause every single human being to fall on his face. So the question is not, will you fall? The question, my beloved, that I think is so imperative for us is what will the Son of Man say to you when you do? It's not if you will fall. We're all going to fall before the Son of Man. The question is, what does the Son of Man do? What does he say to you after you fall? Look at the latter part of verse 17. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying what? Fear not. Fear not. Now, my beloved, this is the apostle John. He had been called as a disciple of Jesus Christ as a very young man, probably the youngest of the 12. He had walked. Now, listen, he had walked with the Son of Man, for three and a half years. He saw Jesus do things many did not. He saw him give sight to the blind. He saw him heal the sick. He saw him raise dead people. He got to be up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus buried. He saw Jesus rise from the dead. He saw Jesus ascend into heaven. He had been a faithful disciple for decades. Faithful disciple, so much so that he finds himself in exile on the island of Patmos for testifying to Jesus Christ. And yet, after a lifetime of experiencing firsthand the glory of God, what does John do? He falls down as though dead. Now, if John responded like that, I guarantee every one of us would respond like that. John was keenly aware of his creatureliness before his creator. I think also John was keenly aware that even after all these years of faithful service, he knew, John knew, he was unworthy to stand in the presence of such glory. He knew it. He knew that. And so he falls down as though dead, knowing what? That death is what he truly deserved in the presence of the glory and majesty of the King. How different from so many Christians today, my beloved. How different from so many in the church this morning here in the West. We've lost the holiness of God that should bring reverence and fear into our lives. I believe that we've lost this sense of who God is. And one of the reasons I believe that we're not changing as we ought and we're not living as we ought is because we don't see God as he is. We don't see Christ as he is. God hasn't changed Christ is just as glorious today as he was in the vision that John received. So if God hasn't changed, then we must have changed, but not for the better. But the Son of Man's response to John is not judgment. Did you notice that? It's comfort. This is so tender. The Son of Man, just described in such overwhelming awe, reaches down his right hand and he touches John. He touches him. It's so extraordinary. It's so personal. It's so intimate. And as he's touching him in love and compassion, he says what? Don't be afraid. Fear not. Even though you're right, I am the God-man. I am truly man and truly God. And you should be utterly terrified because you're a creature and you're sinful. He says, fear not. Oh, my beloved, what glorious words for you to hear as you bow down before your Lord and Savior. Now he's saying this to John specifically. You do not need to be afraid. And then he explains why. Look at the latter part of verse 17. He says to John, fear not. Jesus said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So the first thing he does to John is he calms him down by telling him who he is. He says, I am the first and the last, and that is, my beloved, that is an Old Testament designation, self-designation of who God is. In fact, the prophet Isaiah loved to use that. God would describe himself as the first and the last, and he did that to distinguish himself from all idols, all idols. All idols are man-made gods, And, and they come and they go. But not God. He is the first and the last. He is the everlasting. He is the eternal God who reigns over all creation and all history. He's saying here, I am the sovereign God now and forever. Now that in and of itself would not necessarily bring John any comfort. In fact, that might have made his situation a little bit worse. He drops down as though dead because he knows he's a creature and sinful in the presence of a holy God. And then Jesus affirms, oh yes, I am God. So it's what he says next that would have calmed John completely and enabled him to worship properly. Look at 18. I am, Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Old Testament, New Testament. The living one is the title used for God. God is alive, all idols are dead. But Jesus uses it here in a little more with a little more complexity. Than just an Old Testament title, the Living One being the Living God. Jesus is not saying, I'm the Living One because I am the Living God. Listen, He's saying, I am the Living One because I actually died and I came back. I am the Living One because I am the Living God, Jesus is saying. But He said, I died and I've been raised from the dead and now I live for how long? Forevermore. I live forevermore. Jesus. Truly man, died on that cross to pay for our sins so that we could live. And then he rose from the grave because death could not hold him. The son of man triumphed over the power of sin and death by being raised on that third day. And I I love Thomas Schreiner in his commentary. He said, Jesus is deathless. He's deathless. Death can't touch him. Death doesn't come near him. It has no power over him ever again because he lives forevermore as the son of man and as the son of God. In other words, the picture we're getting here is the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ, your high priest. And then John heard the sweet words. Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. Death and Hades is used together to describe the realm of death, physical death death. Spiritual death, eternal death, the totality of death. Jesus is saying, I got the keys. Now, to have the keys was a phrase of saying, I got all the power over death and Hades. This son of man, absolute authority over it. And therefore, he's saying to John, listen, you're in me. You belong to me. I saved you. Death and Hades has no power over you because I have authority over death and Hades. John ble- he breathed a sigh of relief. That was the moment he went, okay. You are the living one. You did die. You did rise, and I have faith in you. You have the power over death and Hades, and therefore I'm safe. I'm safe, and he was. John falls down as though dead before the glory of Jesus. Because he was fully aware of his sins. And Jesus says, Don't worry, I already died in your place so you can live. So you can live. My beloved, this is the promise that God has to all who have put their faith in the Son of Man. This is the great promise. Jesus made this very clear in John chapter 10 during his earthly ministry. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then he said, I give them what? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John is safe. You are safe if you are in Christ. Death has no power over you. I mean, that is the great enemy of mankind, is it not? It is. Death strips us of everything. Our relationships, our finances, our home, our careers, all your successes. Death strips it away. And Jesus comes and he says, it has no power over you. I have the authority over it and I've set you free from it. What a different way to live, my beloved. What a different way to live. Jesus says to John, fear not, my beloved friend because you have for many years now put your faith and trust in me. He says to John, you have proven your faithfulness by your many years of service and suffering. And then he says to him, fear not, and he gives him a command. This is an act of worship. The command is an act of worship. He's going to be obedient to his Savior as his king, and he did. Look at verse 19. He says to John, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Ask for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he says to John, don't be afraid. Write. Worship. Follow me. Write what you've seen. Write what you're going to see. Write what's it's going to come right and he gives an explanation we know the lampstands are the churches the seven churches in Asia minor that represent the universal church i believe and the seven stars in his right hand he tells us are the angels of the seven churches now there's a verse there's a tough one i mean that has been debated now for centuries some argue that those seven stars are the pastors the seven pastors or elders of these churches um, it's nice, it's a convenient way to try to get somebody personal down on the ground with those churches. There's a problem. Not one time do we have in the New Testament the word angel being ascribed to a pastor or elder or leader of a church. So it, it's, it's nice to hear, but all 75 times the word angel is used in the book of Revelation. It means angel, not complicated. So it's hard to squeeze that one in here. Um, Some argue that the term refers to the spiritual state or the spirit of the church. That one is also difficult to sustain. I'm going to make it real simple. The seven stars are seven angels over those churches. Angels were used to represent. They were used as guardians. Um, What's powerful is that Jesus had them in his hands, and he he would be directing those angels over those seven churches. The key for us this morning as we close is this. Do you see Jesus clearly so you can worship Him properly? Do you have a right vision of the Son of Man that directs how you live day in and day out? Our response, my beloved, should be just like John's. Every single day we should be overwhelmed and overcome with awe and wonder as we fall down to worship the living God. Every day. If he hasn't changed, then our vision has changed. If God is still glorious and we are not living as though he is, then it's not God who's changed, it's our vision of him that has changed. Rather than being overcome and worried by the circumstances of this life, rather than fearing that judgment day that is to come, we need to, and this is the work you have to do on your part, we need to each and every day come before the living God through prayer and His Word and ask God, show me Christ. Show me Christ anew this day. Say, I want to be like John on the island of Patmos. I want to see his beauty. I want to see his majesty. I want to see his power. I want to see his bronze feet. I want to see that doublet. Show me, God. He will. He will. We don't see because we don't ask and we don't look. But God will. He will show you Christ clearly. He will show you that he is all-knowing. And therefore, nothing's going to happen in your life apart from His knowledge and His decree. He will show you His invincibility, that He is the Almighty Judge who judged Himself to set you free. He will show you His glory, the only glory that has the power to satisfy your hungry heart. He will show you that in Christ. So I want to encourage you to fall down daily before the Majesty and glory of Jesus have him reach down have him touch you have him comfort you and then call you to rise and call you to worship him by what by serving by doing what it is he's called you to do it wasn't to write the book of revelation that John has done but you have work to do ways of worship through service that this son of man has called you to Have you seen Jesus clearly? Have you fallen at His feet? And has He touched you, telling you to fear not but to worship Him? If not, my beloved, then do not leave this place. The vision of the Son of Man is real. He is seated upon His throne. Do not leave this morning without bowing down and seeking forgiveness and putting your faith and trust in Him. He will touch you. He will tell you to fear not And he will call you to worship and serve him. If you already know him, then I want to encourage you to fix your gaze on him. Have your heart be captivated by the Son of Man. Know that he's overcome the power of death for you forever. And that means regardless of your circumstances... No matter how much suffering you are experiencing in this life, you know your end is secure. You have eternal life in Christ. And because your greatest enemy, death, has been swallowed up in the victory of the cross, you can, with great joy, say as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15 you can mock death. He said, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen? Oh, what a blessing. Let's pray. Father, answer my prayer. Show us Christ. Show us Christ as He is. If you do, Father, if you're pleased to do that through your Spirit, then we will live as you've called us to live. Show us Christ this day. Show us Christ clearly tomorrow. And show us your son clearly every day until we get to see him face to face. Do that, Father, for our well-being. Do that for the health of this church. Do it for the lost in this community and do it for your glory. You are worthy of all glory and honor and majesty forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said what? Amen. Let it be so. Amen.